it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I had what you might call a traumatic childhood. Uh, my mother left us when I was nine, left us with our alcoholic father. Um, he was ill-equipped to take care of two little girls. I was the older of the two of us. And uh, my mom joined a cult, um, like no kidding, bonafide cult. And I was visiting her over Thanksgiving one uh, year and there was a little boy that they were starving. Now, mind you, this place was deep in the recesses of Bryce Canyon, a five mile hike in, okay, into the mountains of Utah. Um, there was no power. Everyone lived in teepees. And this little boy was my age, he was nine. Um, his name is Petey. I've actually since like been communicating with him because I had to know if he turned out. And they had him in a teepee across the river from everybody else. He was allowed bread and water once a day in his underwear and that was it. And they did systematically shave heads take shoes to keep kids from running away. Now, there were a lot of adults there too, but there were a lot of children. So Petey was starving, clearly. They rang the dinner bell and um, Petey begged us for food. Well, all of the resident children knew better and, you know, hightailed it out of there, went to go have their dinner, and I told him, meet me under the cook shack uh, when it gets dark and I will bring out a plate of food. Well, they had turkey and all this stuff. So I piled this big, huge plate of food out um, up for him and I met him under the cook shack and one of the other kids ratted me out and they called me to the hot seat that um, next day where this was run by a uh, psychologist who's since done time and lost his license, obviously. But anyway, uh, he said, Angie broke one of our rules, we're not gonna feed her. Looked at my mother, for her approval and I thought are you kidding me this is not gonna fly and I look at my mother and she's so gone she was just I could just see the humiliation and devastation both the shame on her face and she agreed to it so like not such a big deal for me like I think I went without two meals or something but the moment itself was the impetus like I can trace everything back to that moment. Um, it was at that point that I decided my mother doesn't love me. I'm unwanted. Um, basically, like I was a mistake. That was my experience with myself, mistake. And then things went um, from frying pan to the fire when I got married very young, 19 years old. And um, the marriage was abusive. Um, you didn't talk about this kind of thing back then. Um, a lot of gaslighting going on. So I was like surrounded in this new world that I felt like I'd created when I was like hoping to get out of the circumstances I was in um, that was actually worse. And I had two little boys. And then um, what finally happened for me was just kind of the split in who I wanted to be, who I believed I was, and then my behavior. And they did not match. And so it wasn't just depression you know, that I was dealing with and anxiety, which I was dealing with like very profoundly at the time. But it was also that I had no say so in my actions. So just leading up to um, the suicide attempt, I would do this thing every six months, okay? And this was very typical of the kind of thing I do. I lived on the island of Okinawa in Japan like really you can drive any direction an hour and a half and you're going to hit water. It's really hard to get lost on that island, right? And um, I have no idea what my thought process were that led me to this, but I went out to get a gallon of milk and I didn't come back for like two or three days. I just didn't come back. I uh, slept in my car, went to the beach, went to the store, got food, went and saw Flatliners, the movie, the, the original Flatliners. Um, and finally went home. And then my children and my husband were on the ground on their knees praying that I'd be safe. And here I was, had disappeared. And I think it was two days actually. So, um, and I didn't say a word really. 
my husband was afraid to ask me, where have you been? What have you been up to? And the next morning uh, is when it kind of hit me. My oldest boy, who was about five, um, was so angry, just so angry. And then my two-year-old wouldn't let me touch him. So I just had the experience. I can't keep putting my children through this. I don't understand what's happening to me. I have no control over it. And mind you, I had gotten help. I had seen counselors and nobody had any answers for me. And um, that was it. It was that my children were better with all, out with all, my children were better off without me. So that's what I did. And I waited till the next night when everyone was asleep. And um, the first thing I did is I slit my wrist with um, a broken apart safety razor, which was really ineffective. I didn't know how anybody did that, but I did leave pretty deep scars on my wrist. Um, but then I started taking everything in the medicine cabinet. And um, I took it at first a whole bunch of stuff, you know, and of course it came up. And so then I sipped and swallowed through the night so that I could hold it down. And then um, in the morning at about 10 a.m., 11 a.m., I sent my boys off to a neighbor with a note, just said, I'm not feeling good. And then I could feel it happening. Um, it was this profound, extremely loud, like vibrating kind of inescapable energy like this rattle like an earthquake or like an airplane is coming down into the living room like that and I could feel it in my body um, by this time I'm laying down on the couch um, and I also have a knowing of what's going on wow it's happening so I'm laying on the couch at first I thought it was a jet coming down and I peeked out my window and it was clearly happening inside of my body and I knew like this is it. Well, I'd had a stepmother who had had a near-death experience and she'd gone to the corner of the room. So that's what I expected. So I uh, wanted to watch because that's the state of mind I was in. I was not well, I wasn't healthy and I was dark. It was dark time for my life and I wanted to watch and see this happen. So I opened my eyes and as soon as I did, I could feel my body just like back into my body. I could feel my spirit and my body reconnect. So I closed my eyes again, and then I could feel this energy. I could feel it separating. I knew I was out of my body, opened my eyes to watch, back in my body. So I did that a couple of times, and then finally it was just like, okay, opening my eyes, that is disrupting this process and closing my eyes. So I, I pressed my eyes closed, and suddenly I was swallowed up in the experience. Um, I had the experience of being like this and being squeezed and being pushed. And what I'm seeing is this yellow membrane with these red like capillaries running through it. And I'm experiencing emotionally this euphoria at the same time. And then I'm pushed through this tunnel. And it wasn't until later I realized that was my birth because then the next thing I see is my mother cradling me. And I look so much like her, I was confused and thought that I was looking at myself at first. But then I realized I'm feeling everything. I can experience everybody's points of view. And my mother was 18 when she had me. And um, that was when I got, wow, she loved me, she wanted me. And that euphoria that I was experiencing, that was in the birth canal, that was my own. I wanna be here, like my choice to live, but it was also hers, her desire to have me. Mm -hmm. So that was just a complete surprise to me, the first of many. And uh, so then I went through my life beginning to end. Every moment of my life, um, parts of it were just rushed through, not important, but parts of it were slowed down so that I could experience. And the point of it was experience how everybody else around me experienced. So out of that, it's like exoneration and patience and love and forgiveness for my father, for my mother. Um, and then also getting how my actions impacted others. That was the big one. Right. Um, I mean, at the time, I really, truly hated my husband. You know, it was abusive. And but suddenly I'm seeing through his point of view and I'm getting, wow, he just got what I got. He got a set of circumstances. He got a set of parents. He got his DNA. And then he got all of his experience that led up to 
how he was the way he was when, you know, and I had contributed somewhat to that. So I was able to see completely. I kept it to myself for a long time until um, I felt called actually to share it, to support people who are dealing with life. I mean, the big message I got was, wow, this is just a second, really, in the grand scheme, it's just a moment. And that even those who are experiencing the worst of the worst that our planet has to offer people, it comes to an end and it's like it was a dream. And there's complete healing and complete exoneration. And everybody that ever harmed anybody gets to see it from their point of view. And, and there's, a, you know, like a, I don't know, a redemption, if you will, where we all see from each other's perspectives. And when you see from somebody else's point of view, there is nothing but forgiveness, gratitude, love. That's all that's there. So. My name is Chris Batts. I am a near-death experiencer um, by way of a suicide attempt. <clears throat> um, before I get into my near-death experience, I sort of want to break down why I had a near-death experience. So... I was very suicidal at the time. I had a lot of thoughts of leaving Earth way back when, since I was like four years old. Um, I do know, because I don't have much of a relationship with my mom or dad. I don't know where they are. I don't even know who they are. You know what I mean? I see my mom very few times. My dad left her when she was pregnant. I've never seen, well, from what I hear from my grandma when I was a little kid she told me my dad had <clears throat> I guess took me around a couple times when I was a baby to get ice cream but of course I don't remember that maybe I was a couple months old if that that's the only um, interaction I've ever had with my dad so I don't know what he looks like um, and I grew up in home to home actually going home to home um, what ended up happening was my mother, at six months old, threw me in a dumpster. You know those neighborhood dumpsters? She threw me in one of those because I guess she wanted to get on with her life. I was a burden to her. Um, one of the times when I was five years old, when I actually did see her, she told me the reason why she threw me in a dumpster was because I didn't want. she didn't want me. And her words literally were, I didn't want you at the time so I mean that's what she said now I think about it I kind of laugh about it I guess it's nothing to laugh about but shoot I'm happy you know yeah so the lady found me and she called my grandma I guess my grandma was at church so the lady calls my grandma and says oh my gosh I have a baby here right now um I hear your baby this is your mom's your daughter's child like this is your grandchild in the dumpster and my grandma immediately left church and pretty much from there she took me in um so from six months up until i was four she took me in um during these times she let my mom see me every so often but she wasn't supposed to see me because my grandma had custody of me and she went to court for me after my mom threw me in the dumpster and the judge told her like hey you can no longer see your son ever 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 again so that's when my grandma had custody of me <clears throat> um so fast forward you know after she's still in the hospital um i end up um living with her daughter a lot of times I went to bed hungry. A lot of times they would say, I don't deserve food and clothes. I lived with them all the way till I'm four years old up until I was 14. So during this time was horrible for me. And um, they, a lot of, they bought, they had got their son clothes and shoes and everything. He was the, the golden child, so to speak. And I was the one that had to do all of his chores and his work and still get good grades. And if you forget to vacuum or clean or wash the dishes or something because you're doing homework, you get beat. They used to beat you for everything. We went to church every single Sunday and sometimes during the week on Mondays and Wednesdays and Saturdays. And sometimes when they would have what they call a revival, you go every like you go every day, you know, for weeks at a time. And um, <clears throat> yeah, and these people are so we were Baptist Christian. I need to um 
incorporate this in here. We were Baptist Christian, and um, these people were very mean. They were very, very mean. I didn't have anybody I can talk to. I needed someone to talk to, and I didn't have anybody to talk to. So that's what led to my suicidal thoughts. Um, so years later, I was just trying all the drinks, all the drugs I can, everything, so I can feel accepted. Because all my life, I never felt accepted. But then that starts getting old. My mind started to change, and I didn't want to do that anymore. But what ended up happening was more and more suicidal thoughts started coming. So I started planning my suicide. I said, I'm just going to leave because I had no one to talk to. It seemed like a lot of the friends I had sucked. So I just planned it. So I said, I'm just going to plan my suicide. So I did for months. I was planning on jumping in front of a train. But as, because uh, I timed the train times in the times they come. So I was just going to lay in front of the train, let it run me over. Then I was going to drown myself. And it just didn't work out because I'm talking to one of my friends that thought were my friend. And we were, I was trying to confide in them. And the type of friends I have don't understand sympathy. They don't. And that's someone that has suicidal thoughts and don't feel accepted. That's the worst thing you can do is not have sympathy. Or should I say that's the worst thing they can feel is not having sympathy for them or acceptance. So I was walking to the train station I planned, or the train I was planning to kill myself at. Eventually, the uh, friend I was with talking to at that time, she, um, she pulled over and she saw me walking and said get in the car because she happened to be driving around that way and um said she had a funny feeling so my mom calls me and says my she said your grandma that gave me your number and i called to tell you that i don't want you i don't love you um i don't claim you i've never wanted you i never do want you don't call me your mom and um so at this point I was in my friend's car, so I opened the car door. I said, and I tossed it, F you, you never were my mom. And I tossed the uh, phone out the window. And I looked at my friend as she hit the right, she hit a right corner. And I just said, F this, and jumped out of the car. That's when my near death experience happened. Um, I just remember my back of the back of my head hitting the concrete. And I'm trying to yank myself out, but some like up. But something keeps telling me I wouldn't do that if I were you. So I end up uh, being stubborn and saying, okay, well, I'm going to do it anyway. Ha. And um, I got up, but I didn't know I was out of my body then. So I'm in this void. And then I felt God's presence. And God was like giving me a hug and telling me that he loves me. And I had so many questions in my head about God slash source and before I even asked them audibly, the answers came mentally and said, um, I am God. Yes, I am real. Yes, angels are real. They're a gift for me. Want to meet them? So I said, nope. I did not believe in angels. I My relationship with Christianity and God and all that, my years of growing up, I had a different opinion. From the people that I knew, from how religious they claimed to be, it didn't add up. So I said, okay. I didn't really care what happened to me, suicide, and getting out of here. Anything would have been better than being here. That's how bad it was and how alone I felt. And um, so, and then I see like God's source is showing me like this video pr presentation of people. And first you see like the skateboarder guy, then you see this business suit guy like this guy with the business suit and a briefcase then you see this prostitute girl walking and you see this other guy just straight up like walking with his blunt in his hand you know and everything it was nuts and um what god said was um i love all of them and i love all you the same and i'm like wow and um so me feeling god's love i said well how do i explain you if i go back to earth and he says, go and tell everyone that I love them. And then he says, I will go to the end of the world so everyone is with me. And I never forget that. I'm like, wow, like I didn't get judged. I didn't feel any condemnation. Only judgment I felt is when I, from when I judged myself. 
So I'm the one who judged myself more than anything. So I want you guys to know you're not going to be judged. Most religious people would probably disagree with me. The ones that are really how came up like I grew up. Scared to have an opinion and think about certain things. But me experiencing it actually proved to me that we are loved and we are not judged. Only judgment we give is ourself. So that's what I brought back from my near-death experience. Um, For the near-death experience, we're going to kind of give you a uh, like a pretext to what led up because the near-death experience was more of a result to the way I was living before. And so um, like all people like with near-death experiences, everyone has their own story on why that may have happened. Um, for me, it was more deliberate. Um, like before this, I was struggling with drug addiction. I was just struggling with not living my life in a way that I would consider to be good for myself in any way, shape or form. Um, a year prior, my younger brother had died as well. So I had, I was very grief stricken, but drugs were always a thing that I battled with. And then it got to the point where I just became so heavy, so negative that it was more or less like, I just don't want to live anymore. I don't want to be here. So um, I ended up consuming an entire bottle of painkillers. And that was when I had this near-death experience. Um, so I can start there. Like, when I take that, when I took the bottle of painkillers, it took a little bit for it to kick in. But when it did, everything just started to go black on me. And then the next thing I remember is I'm now seeing myself from a different vantage point. So I'm more or less now looking down on myself. I know we hear the stories like people, they're looking down on themselves when we hear these. And that's absolutely what happened to me. I was just looking down on myself, like on my body. And there were paramedics working on me and doing things like that. I was in the ambulance. So whatever happened before, like when I took the pills, there was obviously a time where the paramedics had to be called and all these things had to take place. I'm thinking about 25 minutes where everything was just black. For me, it didn't seem like 25 minutes. It was like really instant, but it had to have been about 25 minutes. And so everything was black until that moment where I'm now staring down at myself in the ambulance. And this is where everything kind of began. This is the, the first thought I really had. The first idea was, Oh, wow. Like this is what it means to die. I was like, well, but, but I'm not dead. Like, so the, the, the idea of death for me immediately changed to, Oh, we don't die at all. Now I had an understanding of this a little bit because when I was young, I would see spirits, but I didn't quite understand what that was. So I didn't really kind of even relate it to life after death. I just maybe thought that I don't know, spirits were kind of in one realm, but so I didn't really, I didn't have a context for it, but I, I, I didn't really know. I didn't grow up with um, like a religious background about what would happen. Although I did have a fear of going to hell um, just because of all the things I did while I was living. So that was one thing, but hell was definitely not something that I experienced when I died. Um, hell was more something that I experienced while I was living um, before uh -huh. And I would say even after when I came back, it was more hell like because I had to repay all the damage that I had done. This was another thing I learned about karma being a very real thing. Karma is not just a concept or a belief. For me, it was absolutely real. I had to feel what I did to others in some way, shape or form. I had to give that back. I had to go through the pains and the emotions on other people that I may have put them through things. But going back to like being out of my body um, and this idea that, oh, wow, this is what it means to die. Um, it's just so odd because we're kind of here. So, so I, I was still here, but I was on a different, let's say a channel, a different bandwidth. I was beside this world, but the world still all looked the same. But I was no longer in time and space. I was outside of this slow process that we go through called time and I was no longer within that. So everything was, was perceived from like one moment and my life started to become a review. So as the review goes, the review started out slowly, but then it started to speed up and then everything started to come into this meshed one moment of time kind of thing. Um, but not only did I review this life and the things that I did realizing that I had basically messed up or, done wrong all things that i kind of put for myself to do um as like 
before I came here. And I can't speak for anyone else other than my own self and my experiences. So everything I say is my thing and I can't speak for other people. But for me, I set up this blueprint, like this plan, this path of life. And I set up challenges and things that I would do and things I'd have to achieve while being here. And it was very obvious that I failed through all of those challenges. Just be, I didn't, I just was always running away from things. I never could, you know, complete things. I would hurt people out of my own insecurities and my own fears. And I had a lot of fears too. And when I'm looking at this review, when I'm looking at this blueprint of life, I'm realizing, oh man, like I didn't even get one thing right. I, just, I totally messed it up. But there was no, um, we get this idea of like being judged or whatever. Um, for me, I was the judge. I was the jury. I was the defense. I was all things that represent me judging myself. There was no authority saying you did bad. You go here. Oh, you did good. You're allowed into heaven. Like that didn't exist. And the way I experienced it was there was no God in the sense of God being separate from me. I was one with that God. So I was, everything was a part of it, not separate from it. There was nothing of a creator, but it was all creation that we all exist within. So the idea of like visiting God, or I didn't have that experience. I just had the experience of knowing that I was God in a sense of being a part of creation. Um, so a lot of the NDEs and stuff, people talk about their own unique experiences. And I think it's so neat that we do have these unique experiences that all pertain to the individual person. But I think there's these universal truths too, that people talk about and things like that, that we can kind of all relate to as well, which is really neat too, because it shows that, you know, a lot of us are, are having these same kind of experiences, um, from all different walks of life and all different parts of the earth. So it's, it's neat to see how a lot of the same things do happen for, for a lot of us. Um, and so I started to view, I started to review my life and I started to see the things and, and not only did I see what I did wrong, but I felt what others felt when I did them wrong. But I also felt what others felt when I lifted them up, when I made them feel good. So it was as if I was almost one with them as well. Not only did I review um, this life, but I started to open up to like past lives as well. Um, as we experience them linearly, time does not run in a line. Time is actually runs in circles is really the true nature of time. And so I started to realize, oh, we also have past lives and we just don't have um, connection to those past lives because in this life, we've put a veil over us so that we are disconnected from the past lives so that we can focus ourselves here and then do what we can to develop and grow. One thing, like one strong belief I have about our spirits and our souls is that our souls love challenge because challenge creates expansion and our soul loves to be challenged and our soul wants to grow. So we are just hundred percent energy, but that energy will expand. And from my own personal experience, expansion happens at a faster rate. The more we're challenged, the more resistance we experience and the more struggle we go through. I think that's why I've expanded so much in such a short time because my life has just been filled with one challenge after another. And like people, I'll meet people and say like, you're, you're wise beyond your, your, you know, you're wise beyond your years. And it's just because I think all the things that I've been through and all the kind of the experiences I've had. So um, yeah, the soul wants this expansion so much. And a lot of people ask, why am I here? Like, I don't want to be here. Like we always think like it's too hard, but the soul loves it, right? It loves earth. I think because earth is one of the places in the galaxy that is one of those like master schools and we just want to be here for that reason. This is an event that will change your life forever. I wasn't the same. I was only seven. But I was not the same after this happened to me. Again, I could see things that I couldn't before. I could see through people. I understood without knowing the, the right and wrong. Um, I know the answers. To so many things and of course as a child who's going to listen to a seven-year-old or eight-year-old you know nobody except stories maybe but um, that went on for 10 years and again I wanted to get so desperately in that light in that magnificent space that I decided that the only way to do this was to uh, 
to die. So I decided to swallow all the pills that I could find in the house, my grandparents' house, and swallow them, you know. So I waited until nobody was around and uh, swallowed bottles and bottles of pills until I passed out. And the only thing, uh, the only reason I'm here today is because a, a, a friend from the village came to the house with her boyfriend to pick up a book that she landed me. So she got to my room, found me, unconscious, passed out, and called her boyfriend, apparently. They dragged me off the bed, down the stairs, on my head, by my feet. <laughs> I was full of bruises. Get to the hospital. I, I was out. I never woke up all this time. Get to the hospital, and then my heart stopped because it's been too long. So they tried to pump my stomach to get me back to life, and I left my body again. But this time was completely different than the first time. I again left it and saw my body on a gurney. Was not interested like the first time at all about that. And I was, at, I was looking for a light. I was attracted to the light. And I floated back again to this spot where I couldn't see the light. But I was very strongly swallowed in that space, practically swallowed and spit out. I found out later that it's the tunnel, but it's called a tunnel today. And it just dropped me on the other side where the light was, but it was a different light, a different dimension. It was not the same place I was in the first time. And uh, instead of seeing someone or a, new, a beam of light, I only heard a voice, a very loud, very strong voice telling me, you can't stay. You have not even begun your work yet. And I was a very, a vo you don't discuss with that voice. You don't argue. I argue with everybody or everyone, but I could not think of arguing with that voice. All I could say, oh no, you know, that's fair. So I had to get back in my body and back to life. I didn't want to. So that may be one of the reasons why I had so much problem doing it, but it was very painful to get back into this body. And I didn't want it, so I was kind of fighting myself. It took a while, and when finally I, w I was kind of slipping into another, um, I it's not another skin, it's something different, something strange. We don't belong in this. When I got back, I, I finally opened my eyes, and there was a, a nurse sitting next to the gurney in tears. She thought I was dead, you know, so she was just, I was 17, and felt sorry, and this and that. And I opened my eyes. <laughs> she stopped. She stood up from her chair and started to scream. <laughs> Run down, find a doctor. Bon, okay, I was back. So I had to go on. I had to accept myself. I had to accept why I was here and wait for, you know, whatever. I was here to, to be doing. Things would come to me and unfold. There, was, there were complications, and they ultimately said, no, you're, you can't get pregnant. So that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. On top of it, I was extreme, it was related to this female problem. Um, I was extremely anemic. So I, I had had three blood transfusions. I was taking iron and none of that helped me. And so that being depressed and now not having any kids, I didn't see a way I could ever be happy. I was suffering. Getting up in the morning was like climbing Mount Everest just to get out of bed and put on my clothes, which were always a heap next to my bed because I was too tired to, to clean house, to take care of myself. I was exhausted all the time. And to, to go and stand in front of a classroom was took every last bit of energy I, I had. And so I decided, if what is life worth living if you can't be happy? Um, so I decided then I wanted to do away with myself and end it. And I didn't believe in an afterlife. <laughs> of course not. Um, I just wanted to and the pain, 
and in my life. And so I began thinking about the different ways to do it. And I didn't want it to look like a suicide because I didn't want to hurt my parents. I didn't want them to blame themselves. They were only coping with the fact I've lived so far away from them by thinking I was happy. I never let on how miserable I was. So I didn't want them to be devastated over the thought that I killed myself. So it couldn't look like a suicide. So it's amazing what that rules out. <laughs> so no pills, you know, uh, no shotgun. Um, I am terrified of heights. So we're living on the seventh floor. I wasn't afraid of dying. I wanted to die, but no, I'm not jumping out the window. That might look like a suicide too. I didn't, then there was a thing where I didn't want to do a half job. So I thought of taking the car and going into a tree or going over the cliff, and Austria has plenty of cliffs. So <laughs> the Alps, you know, driving up an alpine road and go But again, fear of heights, and B, I didn't want to wind up being maimed in the hospital the rest of my life. That was, that was, so what was there left? Suffocation, no, that'll look like suicide, no. I was kind of running out of options, really. No overdose, okay. Um, I'd always been interested in different cultures and mind-body things, even since I was a kid, mind-body control and how different cultures, they could be stabbed and not bleed and they could lie on a bed of nails and not be in pain, you know, that kind of thing had always fascinated me. So I had a couple of books about that. And just by chance, I was reading a, this book about um, different cultures and how they dealt with death. And they described a process called autogenic death in this book. It was in German. But it was, they described how native cultures, when, when someone was older or sick, they decided they wanted to, to die they would walk off in the forest and will themselves to die. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. I had gone to the University of Innsbruck for two years to, to learn German. And um, while there, I took a, had taken a course that either Austrians or German invented this term autogenic training. And what they were doing were training Olympic athletes on how to develop mind-body, such mind-body control, they wouldn't feel pain. Um, they could regulate their heartbeat, they could regulate their body temperature, and they could have hyper-focus and, and be relaxed, and also rejuvenate the body, because you do this training, you, it's like getting eight hours sleep, 20 minutes, if you do it well, 20 minutes is like eight hours sleep for the body. We need sleep from dreaming and all that stuff, but. In terms of relaxation, that was the equivalent. And that's why I was taking it, because I was hoping, because I was having a hard time sleeping, and I was interested in the whole mind-body thing. And I really went into that course on a deep level. So here I am reading this book. Now I'm suicidal many years later, and I'm reading this book, Autogenic Death, Autogenic Training. Ha! Ah, I'll will myself to die, and nobody will know I'm, I had... Um, committed suicide, and it'll be painless, and it'll be all over. I had nothing to lose. So every single night, I went to bed, and here's that stubborn streak of mine, you know, determined. Um, lay there every night and went through the exercises, and it's so profound. I, you can make half your body go hot and half your body go cold. You can make your right foot toe, left toe tingle. Uh, you can stop feeling hungry or, you know, you can go instantly relaxed like that if you want. It's, you can slow your heart rate. And the autogenic death part is you can stop your heart. So that's what I was doing. Night after night, they're going to find me dead in bed. They're going to find me dead in bed. They were not going to why. My heart stopped and they're going to find me dead in bed. This went on for, I don't know, months. <laughs> it went on for months, and there were times I was in a void-like state where there was 
pure nothingness. I could feel, I could not feel my body. It was, it was a vast void, several, several times like that. And I said, well, I'm not dead yet, I'm thinking. My mind's still going, gotta keep at it, you know. So I just kept, kept going. And then one night, late at night, uh, I think um, God, the light, or the other side said, enough of this. <laughs> she needs an intervention, big time. So uh, I'm lying in my black, dark room, and all of a sudden, it was like a thousand flashlights had suddenly come into the room. Not flashlights, uh, what do they call those? Floodlights. Everything was illuminated and crystal clear. Now I'm very nearsighted. You are you are now all blurs, you know. <laughs> I need my glasses to really see. But without my glasses, I could see everything crystal clear. Uh, I could see down the hall, I could see the pattern in my bedspread, you know, I could see reflection in the mirror. And I looked out the window, the sky was blue. I don't know what. I think I've just entered into some new kind of dimension here. What's, what is this? I was actually quite astonished and wowed by it. It's like, oh my God, people got to know about this other dimension here. This is really interesting. So I moved to get, to get up, to go kind of explore this. And as I'm doing this, I'm hearing 360 degree uh, people talking. And I realized what I'm hearing is everybody in that apartment building's dreams. I could pick out a little bit of it. And I said, okay, I'm going to try to pick out my husband's dream and wake him up and tell him what he dreamt, and then he'll know I've been somewhere. You know, so that's, I, it shifted from wanting to die to wanting to, oh, you know, my God, there's another dimension. How exciting is that? And so I got up to move, but then um, this other light enveloped me. And this was a light that you, near-death experiences later, I didn't know anything about near-death experiences at the time, but when they started talking about the light, I started crying, you know, because, oh my God, other people have experienced this, this light. Everything disappeared. It was like I had no body and no, no, there was a separation, there was a sense of self in it, but I felt like I was in a warm bath of love, pure, unconditional love. And it was warm, it was welcoming, all my worries, all my fears, all my stress were gone. It was pure bliss. And even though I, it was all light, it wasn't, I was seeing anything, seeing anybody or anything, I felt it was home. And I wanted to stay there forever. I said, oh my God, this is love. And, and I was thinking, you know, I want to stay in this light forever. I just bask in, in this wonder. And uh, slowly it kind of dissipated, went away. And I'm in, this, in my bedroom in this state of awe. I was just in the state of amazing awe. And it was still lit up. And I turned to my side and I see white robes standing next to my bed. And then I looked up, holy moly, that's Jesus. And uh, he was looking at me with intense blue eyes that I've never been, I've never seen anybody with that, with those blue eyes. And he, uh, he said to me one sentence, and that was, uh, but he didn't move his lips. I heard his voice, male's voice, in my head, or wherever I just heard it. Uh, Don't waste your life thinking you're not loved. And when he said the word your life, I felt, I felt this. It was palpable how precious my life was and not just how precious my life was, but how precious everybody's life was, including that kid in Africa. 
And that answered my doubting about the whole religious thing or the, you know, that there was a God and that it wasn't fair that, you know, here I am. Uh, anyway, while well, that kind of stepping forward. So I went to, he, he, it disappeared. The room went dark again. And I went to move, but I wasn't in my body. And I had never heard of the concept of being out of your body. And it was kind of a shock. Oh my God, I'm not in my body. And my body, it pulled me back. It pulled, it was like being pushed back into my body and it was very extremely unpleasant. Here I was feeling very light and expansive and now I've got to get in this dank, dense, cold body, you know, and I, it, was, it was very unpleasant. I, I liken it to maybe like you're, there's a, cold mud and you fall back into this pool of cold mud and it absorbs you and it was a shock I said oh my god I've been out I was out of my body I kept trying to go back I want to go back I want to go back and um, it was a brief moment where it, it did come back a little bit but as if to say no we're always here for you or something it's always here and uh, so I, uh, it completely flipped my world inside out and upside down. I had to reconsider every thought I thought had thought, every belief I held, every concept was now, had to be re-examined in light of that experience. And I was an English teacher, so I took that sentence, that one precious sentence he gave me, and I took it apart, you know? I pulled it apart. Okay, so waste, there's a life to be wasted. So that meant I, we, everyone has a purpose of some kind, has a mission, is a reason, a precious reason for being here, whatever that is. It's precious. So, okay, what is my purpose? Yikes, I don't want to waste my life. I got the supreme command here. Um, what is my purpose? I got to figure that out. So that that became a challenge. Tried to figure that out, and then don't waste don't waste your life. Meant I was creating this situation. That I was not a victim of my circumstances. That I needed to. That I had a choice. I had choices all the time. I, every thought was a choice because most of this was up here. It wasn't what I was doing, it was what I was thinking. And that got me depressed. So being depressed became for me a way to waste life. So I had to figure out how to make myself feel better and find my purpose and wonder how now, how is this gonna affect my actions in the future because I want, you know, I want to go to heaven. <laughs> to go back home. Um. My mom was uh, very suicidal. She was always talking about suicide and taking her life and things like that and sending us to CFS. So I started to understand them. Like she, for her though she used it as a tool to get what she wanted. I think for her it was because the only thing that, that we knew of value was life life had value, life was sacred, and um, that's why she used to threaten suicide. And for me, my first attempt at suicide was when I was about eight years old. And uh, I took uh, a bunch of pills. I took nerve pills back then because I had a nervous rash on both my, my, on my arms here. And um, they had me on nerve pills, and um, I never really got to take them. My mom used to take them instead, but I was the one who was like I—I I was trying to maintain a life. 
um, taking care of my brothers and sisters and I had to take care of my mom because she was not only addicted to pills, she was also addicted to uh, alcohol. And um, I felt like uh, there was a lot of pressure on me and, and I just wanted to end my life. And um, I took pills and I remember being going to the hospital. My mom was beating me up all the way. And then when I got to the hospital, like she she uh, hit me and told me to walk because the doctors wanted me to walk. And I had to show them that I could walk. And um, I did the best that I could do. And uh, even I was staggering and they kept me for the night. And then the next day my mom says, you better walk because I'm going to punch you out if you don't. So I walked and I walked, I took it really slow and took it very carefully because I didn't want to get beaten up, right? And then my mom was also mad because I took all the pills, not just mine, I took hers as well. So she had nothing. And uh, later on I tried slashing my wrist. I was about 12 years old, 13, somewhere around there. And um, and then when I was uh, in my 20s, my early 20s, my mom passed away with um, from uh, cancer. And uh, anyway, I got to a point in my life where I just wanted to give up. I was in so much despair and um, felt my children would be better off without me as well. They'd have a better life without me because I didn't really have too much of a life to offer. And um, anyway, um, I just wanted to give up and I had I had cancer myself. I had breast cancer at the time and I had um, um, black fluid coming from my breast. And um, I had a, the doctors were giving me a lot of uh, Tylenol 3s and I didn't really take them but I, I kept them in the medicine cabinet at my sister's place. Now when I finally decided that I wanted to to die. I had this plan already in my head and I went out and I got myself um, a Mickey of whiskey and I went inside the bathroom and started swallowing the pills and uh, I must have been about 90, 90 of those Tylenol 3s because I had a lot of those bottles. I had about three different bottles and I swallowed all of them. I think maybe I might have dropped a couple down the sink, but I, I basically swallowed all of them. And I knew I, I was already starting to feel it, and I just started to drink the whiskey and went and sat down, made myself comfortable on the couch, and laid down and was ready to die. And... Um, When I first uh, shut my eyes, um, I remember feeling that pain in my heart, that that uh, loneliness or despair, and um, that loss, you know, that grief. At first I just seen, like at first it was just dark, and then uh, I was told I can hear this other voice and it said, turn around, and I turned around and I can see that very small speck of light way off in the distance and I uh, started walking towards it because I was told now go to that light so I started walking towards that light and I remember seeing the colors different colors passing me by and as I got closer to that light that light started getting bigger and bigger and bigger and finally it was just big enough for me to get in it wasn't like it wasn't like a great big huge door it was just big enough for me to get through so I walked inside that light, but as I was going towards that light, I could hear that voice telling me, 
everybody has got a certain time on the earth. Everybody's given a certain time. You would feel that pain, that suffering that you had inflicted upon others until your time was either up or they forgave you. And that's how long you would have suffered. But because you were chosen before you were born to do something, right? And no one else can do it but you. And that's the reason why you're being given this chance. And then I walked inside the light and I dropped to my knees because I can feel that overwhelming sensation of love. It was just so beautiful, I never felt it. And I began to cry. That was so, so beautiful. I never experienced that kind of love in my lifetime. And um, anyway, I seen um, a man standing there. And that man didn't have just one color of skin. He, skin kept changing all different colors and um, when I looked into his eyes he was like I could see fire in his eyes there's nothing nothing else I could see of him and uh, I can hear the water behind him I knew that there was a lake because I can hear that water and I can hear the children playing and dogs barking, they, they were happy, you can hear the happiness, eh? And the older people, I can hear them joking around and laughing as well. And I could have swear I recognized some of those voices. Of people that I knew that had passed. And um, that man started to talk and he said, um, Yes, you were, you were chosen before you were born to do a job in the world that nobody else can do. And because of that, and the fact that you made a promise to God, the Great Spirit, the Creator of all things, because you made that promise, you have to fulfill it before you can come back here. And you have to go back. And when he said I had to go back, I grabbed hold of his legs, and I grabbed hold of him tight, and I was begging him, Please don't send me back. I don't want to go back. And he says, yeah, you must go back. He says, but so that you remember this visit and that this is real. Every time you look into the mirror, you're going to have, you're going to have uh, something to remember. Remember this by. And he, he sent me back. It was just like a bolt of lightning. And I remember sitting up and I'm going, <gasps> I um, I remember now the teachings. I really know the teachings now when they say life is sacred. I understand the sacredness of that life. And no matter what you go through in life, um, you'll never be able to... You'll, you can, Creator will never give you more than what you can handle. And you can always handle it by finding somebody to talk to talk to. If it's not a human, you can go out in a bush, you can talk to animals. I do a lot of that because I have a problem with trusting people. So um, I've learned how to deal with that in other ways. Sometimes I go to the sweat lodge and I talk directly to Creator and grandfathers. Or I find somebody that I can find that I can trust, and they're very few and far between. Like I said, I have a trust trust issue, mm -hmm. but a dog will never tell nobody. <laughs> <laughs> a cat will never tell nobody. The trees, they'll whisper in the winds, but they'll never tell you. Never tell what you're telling them. And um, I find a way of letting it go. And then I, what I, one thing that I've learned is that I can always find a way out of it. There's never, there's never a reason to actually take your life. Like um, when I start feeling really bad, 
I'll ask a child, you know, give me a hug. And when you feel the love of the child, then that gives you strength to carry on for that day. And one day leads into another and another. And sometimes when I make a mistake and I get myself into a place where I want to commit suicide, or you know, you feel like that, what I do is I ask not only for forgiveness, but I also ask that uh, I'll be given the strength to forgive myself because uh, we're the hardest ones on ourselves. Yeah. And I learned that one from an elder. But life is so sacred. We take it for granted. I can just say that I was extremely depressed at that time in my life. I was 20. I didn't know who I was. Um, I didn't like who I was. I woke up every morning feeling really alone, feeling really depressed. And it was just, it wasn't just a psychological depression, it was a whole body depression that would come and go in these incredible waves. I felt like it was so bad that I didn't want to be here on the planet anymore. And I didn't really know much about suicide or if that was even an option. Basically when I thought about suicide, I, I didn't want to have to hurt myself. I, I wanted to be just taken and, and without any pain, without any repercussions, I felt like I just wanted to, to go. So at the time and for a long time before that, even as a kid, I felt like I had a connection with the, with the divine, with God. And I would ask God, I don't know, I would say probably fairly regularly if I could just go home, if I could just go back to you. At this stage of my life, it was the second year of my of college and going through this depression, feeling like I didn't belong on the planet, feeling like I couldn't control this depression, not knowing how to ask for help in any way. I called out to the universe, to God, to that higher power, and just said, I don't want to be here anymore. Please take me. If I cannot be happy, I just want to go. So the, I guess, you know, what really is the point of telling your NDE? I, everybody's story is different. And, and I believe that for me, I, if I would take like one lesson away or what was my lesson, that I could share to people? <laughs> well, there wouldn't be one. First of all, life is incredibly vulnerable. It is a gift. And, um, you know, if you, if you have that feeling of you don't want to be here on this planet, I would definitely seek, you know, professional help. There are people out there that are very gifted in being able to help people with um, thoughts, you know, of hurting themselves or not wanting to be here. And um, there's always a gift in everything that comes into our lives. Um, no matter how hard it is or no, no matter how wonderful it is. But for me personally, I would say that it wasn't about me going back home and being with the divine. It was about me learning how to connect with divinity while here on earth to be able to heal my body and bring in enough light into my body where I can have an ongoing connection with God, with the divine, with source. So yeah, that would be, <laughs> which we can all do by the way. So the, I guess, you know, what really is the point of telling your NDE? Everybody's story is different and, and I believe that for me, I, if I would take like one lesson away or what was my lesson that I could share to people, <laughs> well, there wouldn't be one. First of all, life is incredibly vulnerable. It is a gift. And, um, you know, if you, if you have that feeling of you don't want to be here on this planet, I would definitely seek, you know, professional help. There are people out there that are very gifted and being able to help people with, um, thoughts, you know, of hurting themselves or not wanting to be here. 
and um, there's always a gift in everything that comes into our lives. Um, no matter how hard it is or no, no matter how wonderful it is. But for me personally, I would say that it wasn't about me going back home and being with the divine. It was about me learning how to connect with divinity while here on earth to be able to heal my body and bring in enough light into my body where I can have an ongoing connection with God, with the divine, with source. So, yeah, that would be, <laughs> which we can all do, by the way. <laughs>